British Chromatic Royalty Jim Hughes joins me on episode 26. Jim has been playing professionally for over 60 years. From his early success in harmonica competitions, he went on to forge a successful career as a session musician, with countless appearances on the BBC, including playing on the hit TV show Last of the Summer Wine. Jim sets up quite possibly the biggest harmonica festival of all time, the World Harmonica Championship in Jersey in 1987, as well as involvement in other festivals. He has several albums to his name and is a harmonica teacher who has helped guide some real star pupils to go on to achieve great things. A word to my sponsor again, thanks to the Lone Wolf Blues Company, makers of effects pedals, microphones and more designed for harmonica. Remember, when you want control over your tone, you want Lone Wolf. Hello, Jim Hughes, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Neil. You're a chromatic player who's been playing for a long time. Playing for about 60 years now as a professional. And you were born uh, in Birmingham? Yes, I was born in Birmingham in December 1929. So harmonica must be good for you, eh? I think so, yeah. Well, the harmonica shaped my life. Everything that I do, everything that I am, and mostly, you know, all my friends, the whole thing can be related back to the harmonica. Because I didn't really become a person until I started playing harmonica. And then the whole world opened up to me and, and it was amazing. The best thing I ever did. Despite the fact that my father used to say to me, don't waste your time playing a mouth organ, you know. How wrong he was, eh? But I'm sure he's very proud now looking down. Looking back then on how you got started playing, so I believe you picked up in the Army. That's correct, yeah. I joined the Army as a regular soldier, went into the Royal Engineers. I went to Germany and I was stationed there for uh, almost six years. And it was there that I bought my first harmonica, you know, just played by ear. I really didn't know anything about music. I, in fact, wasted a lot of time. I could have done it with a teacher. So my first inspiration for the instrument came when I was very young. And I used to listen to the radio. And Larry Adler did a lot of broadcasts in those days. And it was just an exciting sound. occurred to me to, to want to play it. I mean, that was a golden age of, of harmonica. In that oh, it time, certainly it? was. Yeah. It certainly was, yeah. The other thing that, that was great to listen to was harmonica band, like uh, Bonominovich. <laughs> Johnny Paleo, uh, eventually the, the British bands, and Morton Fraser, Morton Fraser Harmonica Gang. I used to take every opportunity to go and watch them live when I could. When I came out of the army in the early 50s, 
it was, there was a tremendous harmonica movement going on, which, which I came into as a civvy. I remember passing a music shop and seeing this magazine, Harmonica News, which was published by Hona. I bought it, full of excitement. I thought, there's something going on here. And I felt part of the family from then on. They were advertising a competition in London for chromatic players, decided to enter. And to my astonishment, came second. But I met all these great guys. There was a gang of harmonica players, all very competitive. But at the same time, you know, we we had a great affinity with each other. It's an amazing instrument. So talking about some of the great players back then, obviously you've mentioned Larry Adler and Tommy Riley, of course, is a, is a great player back then, and, and Willie Berger. And, and Douglas Tate was a, another English guy who, who entered the competitions with yeah, you. Yeah, I met at this first competition. And in fact, he was the best man at my wedding. But uh, another great player was Ronald Chesney. Mm. He was terrific. Our version of The Flight of the Bumblebee. <laughs> I sort of made a name as an amateur in those days, in the 50s. I was winning competitions regularly, and, and then I entered a, a competition in London run by Hona, not dramatic, just jazz, harmonica jazz. And I entered several sections of this competition and won them all. And Ronald Chesney presented me with cup trophies for each one. And there was a big news item came out in the Birmingham papers. And from then on, it, everything started. I had music shops were ringing me and said, could you come and teach? I've got so many people who want to learn the harmonica. So I'm not a teacher. And anyway, uh, they started me off. And I remember the fees that I used to charge. It was seven and sixpence for a half hour lesson. Five shillings went to me and two and sixpence went to the, the shop. But uh, anyway, it went on from there. And I formed harmonica band. It was barely between four, five or six players. And we had terrific fun. And none of us had cars. None of us had telephones. But we, we arranged meetings. I used to go on the bus to each other's house. Sometimes if we got together on a bus, we'd play much to the uh, amazement of the passengers. It was great fun. You don't see that these days, do you? A harmonica band playing on the on the bus thing. You're on a bus, no, you wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> so that that was the, the five harmonics, wasn't it? Your, your first harmonica band you were in. Now the Debonairs. And then you were in the uh, another one called the Cardinals as well. So, the yeah, Cardinals, you, yeah. That was the same group. We just changed the name. Going back a little bit to, as you say, when you started developing your playing. So I know you mentioned that you played by ear quite a lot to begin with, but then you you turned to starting to, to learn to read music. Yes, it's a, this is a, a very big thing in, in my life. I played in the army knowing absolutely nothing about music, but I had an affinity with the harmonica. I found I had time to play away, and I was played everything in C or D flat, no idea of different scales, things like that. And I thought I was good because I'd, I could play a few tunes well. But when I got back to England and met other players, I realized, I'd got to learn something about music. And that's when I started. And I've been learning about music ever since. Totally self-taught. Although I did go and see Tommy Riley for a few sessions. who wasn't so much a teacher as a, as a demonstrator. An inspirational demonstrator. Because he was a fantastic player. And I wish I could have had a teacher, for, you know, many years before. 
thing I ever did was I went to the BBC and auditioned both as a serious player. This was their idea. You know, to have two auditions, one for classical music and one for uh, lighter music, as it were. And I passed these auditions and it was as if the floodgates opened. The BBC, as if they, they were waiting for me, and I had so much work thrust into a situation where I could play everything and anything, you know. It was very demanding. I had to give up my job as a sheet metal worker in the factory. I lived at the BBC in Birmingham. And, uh, and I understand, did you open up ITV's channel in Birmingham by playing yeah, Tommy Riley? Yes, in ATV that was. Tommy Riley was on the programme and a beautiful actress called Hazel Court presented the programme and he invited me to come and play with him a duet. It was Blue Moon. So I went along and that was my first appearance on television and I remember they paid me a magnificent sum of five guineas is five pounds, five shillings. Was that a lot of money back then? It was. I mean, a week's work was about eight or nine pounds in those days. So to earn five guineas for one appearance was great. Yeah, and so as you say, you you, you were on, you were playing with the BBC and you were playing with uh, Johnny Patrick. Johnny Patrick Quartet, I was part of that. He's a great piano jazz player and he formed the uh, quartet, presented it to the BBC and they, they accepted the idea. And from then on, we were, we were on nearly every day on different programs. This included the radio there. as well, didn't it? You were on the radio a lot too. It's no exaggeration to say I did thousands of broadcasts because from that, I, I did Johnny Patrick almost every day. Then I worked with the Midland Light Orchestra and then with the Bob Potter Orchestra and then with a pianist called Harold Rich. Lots of different combinations. And then I started getting phone calls from different producers. They could you come on my program, come on this. I wasn't really ready for it then, you know. I was totally inexperienced. I drifted from this into session work. It all developed. People began to hear from me. I, I, I became a very efficient sight reader. I was never a, a sort of solo artist that got up on stage and, and did concerts and things, but I could read music. I got in with all the loads and loads of sessions in London, backwards and forwards from Birmingham to London. I did that many sessions. I just didn't know what I was going to do because you never rehearse, you know. They just bring you up and say come to a session, Sansa Studio. Off I'd go. I didn't know what it was. It could be with a full orchestra. It could be a film score. It could be just me on my own or any combination. You never knew until you got there. And they just gave you the music and uh, you don't let it straight away. And that's why I kept getting booked. Because I ended up doing about 200 shows of uh, Last of the Summer Wine, which was a great gig. getting royalties for that. Some of the listeners are, are from other countries, including quite a few from America, so uh, maybe just explain what Last of the Summer Wine, what kind of show that was. It was a sort of light-hearted drama about three old guys wandering around the village and lots of banter, lots of silly situations. There was a sick tune and an exit tune, 
and uh, and all bits in between. And we record up to 30 minutes for each session, a session being three hours. The great thing about it was that the band, we all had a sort of great feel between us. We never rehearsed. We never looked at the music until the boss came in, Ronnie Hazelhurst, and we had a sound check, and then we opened our music up and sight read it. And almost every bit we did was first take. And it was a sort of pride thing, you know, with the orchestra. I loved doing that. Of course, there were different harmonica players, weren't there? There were Dick Tate, yes. and some, and Harry Pitch, and even Tommy Riley did some as well. Tommy Riley did a couple. I, I'll tell you the story of, of Summer Wine. I was booked to do the first one way, way back. Before it became a series, it was just a one-off pilot show. And I was booked to do it just a few days before I caught a severe dose of bronchitis and I could hardly breathe and never mind play. And uh, that's when Harry Pitch was available and they got him on it. He did a lot of shows, you know, perhaps half the whole series. I think it was about 30 years of it. Then eventually, Ronnie Hazelhurst, he rang me and said, could I do it? I did, and that was history. As I said, I did about 200 shows. Do you know what years you were playing? It'd be interesting. We could do I did all. Down. I did the last years from about somewhere in 1995, maybe earlier onwards, right up to the end. I've got no recordings, but they're all out there. All and that, these shows are being played everywhere and on all sorts of uh, you know TV golds and. So this level of, you know, being able to sight read is quite a skill, which obviously got you lots of session work. Did you develop that level of sight reading, maybe for people who are interested in getting to that level of sight reading? I twigged, as I started working with the Beeb, that I've got to be... I was mixing with high-class musicians all the time, wonderful musicians, and I thought, this is a level I've got to get to. Never mind the harmonica, but it's a, an unusual instrument. It's just another musical instrument. You know, I felt quite inferior, to be honest, when I started, but I knew that I'd got to reach their level of competence, which is mind-blowing, you know. Gradually, I did it. I'd practice and practice. I spent a fortune on music, and I also, in the early days, I hired a pianist to practice with so that I was always doing something, playing all sorts of music, playing to the radio, which wasn't sight reading, but I knew that I'd got to learn arpeggios and scales and I'd got to be familiar with them so that I could play in, in any key without worrying about it. So I got myself into this state of, of competence, if you like. It's like a, any tradesman. I think like a carpenter wouldn't go out and, and make a beautiful, fancy cupboard before he could learn to sort a plank of wood. You know, you've got to really know, know what you're doing. And with music, the more you understand and the more you get into it, the more you realize you know nothing. It's an art form on a terrifically high level. Your chromatic harmonic was your only instrument. You didn't learn any other instruments. No, my only instrument. Good to hear that. Lots of people, of course, say it's obviously it's useful to learn like a chordal instrument like piano or guitar to understand the chords. But you felt you could, you, know, you got to a really high yeah. standard by just on the chromatic, yeah? That's it, really, yeah. I mean, what about session work? I mean, that, again, that was a golden era of session work. It was wonderful it? to get in on that. That's when I really started to learn because the session guys in the music industry are, are the real, the cream, you know, and they use the best players they could get from any source. They came from big named orchestras. And I was mixing with musical royalty in a way, you know, and that's when I absorbed and learned so much from these experiences. So I, I learned my trade, as it were. 
move on from the, the session work a little bit. So we'll talk a little bit about the festivals that you were involved with. So in 1987, you organized the, the, the World Harmonica Championship in Jersey, which was a, probably the biggest festival, harmonica festival that's ever been yet. Well, previous to that, Hona used to sponsor a harmonica championship in most countries and eventually a world championship. And then they stopped. And I represented England on, on many of these in all different countries all over the world, well, Europe mainly. It was a great experience to do that, to meet all the international amateur players. But then they stopped doing it and a few years went by and I thought, what a shame that we don't have these harmonica championships. And I thought, well, I was involved at that time in in variety agency work. I'd opened an agency and I was doing some work in Jersey, on the island of Jersey. I got together with a, a business associate over there called Delaney put the idea to him, why don't we do a harmonica championship, a harmonica festival here in Jersey? And he agreed it was a good idea. And we got together, formed a company called Del Hughes. That was two years prior to the actual event. And I then set about trying to advertise this forthcoming event. Uh, did a bit of traveling, went to America, did a, a bit of interest there. Anyway, it's all costing money. At the end of the day, we put the festival on and we had about 33 countries involved. And ITV got interested in it and we had a few meetings. To cable television had just come out then and they said we'd like to uh, record this and put it out as a like a fly-on-the-wall documentary. And I said, great, terrific. From then on, we were working towards this end and we had uh, several meetings and I was looking for a sponsor and I got Listerine or got involved. I said, yeah, we'll sponsor it. The mouthwash company, Listerine. That's it. Wow, yeah, good for the harmonica, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, it had to come through an agent, but uh, the uh, ICV took it to Cannes, where they have the film festival, and I didn't know that they also they could put all sorts of ideas forward. Nobody was interested in Cannes, you know. They thought they were going to get, uh, as it was going out on on uh, cable, that there'd be some interest, but there wasn't. So ICV dropped their interest. Listerine said, well, if it's not going to go out on television, we're not interested in anymore. They dropped out. This was nearly a couple of months before it was actually going to happen. And we ended up with the most wonderful event that ever happened. It lasted a week, and we lost a hundred grand. <laughs> wow. The, the company, uh, though, is... I was penniless at the end of that. But, you know, your life picks up again. My wife got a good temp job. I intensified my teaching and did everything I could, you know. And they gradually built everything back up again. Well, well done. That, that was quite a financial hit for you. So there's YouTube clips. I'll put There's a great YouTube clip of some of the recordings, and it's got you playing Body and All. got uh, Larry Adler playing, it's oh, got yeah, uh, Tom yeah. Riley playing, it's got the Harmonicarts playing, Peg of My Heart. It's got uh, the 
had the trios. We had all of them. And yeah, that's when I met the wonderful Drew Adler. He heads the Adler trio. But now he's gone on his own. But he's a fantastic player. And he plays all the harmonicas, bass, chords, a lot. And he has produced a recording which took him years and years to make where he plays every instrument. And it's all heavy. I say heavy. It's all difficult classical music. It's absolutely fantastic. It's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. It's mind-blowing what he does. about music business. You meet some good people, really yeah. nice people. Through Noah and Draw, you, you went on to set up a festival in Israel, didn't you, in 1990? Oh, yeah, they invited me to go to Israel to advise them about having a harmonica festival. And uh, I ended up going there four consecutive years and actually teaching at the conservatoire in Beersheba. And uh, that was a nice experience, mainly Russian, Russian immigrants, because Israel is made up of every nationality in the world. And there's a lot of Russian musicians and they wanted to learn the harmonica. They already played mostly accordion. So I used to give sessions there and, and demonstrations and things. I had a really nice time in Israel. Music is very important to them. There was a festival there, wasn't there, for, for one year as well in 1990? We had another festival. As a result of the, of the 1987 uh, Jersey Festival, is it right that that's what started Trossingen running in, in Germany? Ah, oh, yeah. They were quite pleased that I'd done this. And they got me to organize the next one in Trossingen, which was a couple of years later. That was a terrific success. And the sales of harmonicas shot through the roof. And the manager there, he was absolutely over the moon. And we had a talk while I was there. And he said, I'd like you to continue with this and you can run the whole thing, the World Festival, forever, you know. And I thought, God, I've landed myself a nice little job here. And he died. He had a heart attack and died. And that was it. That was the end of my, my connection with, with Hona. You know, an opportunity gained and then lost in an instant. Wow. But but again, you know, I think a lot of people wouldn't appreciate that, you know, what you did in 87 there was was a, was a forerunner for Trossingham, which is a very well-known festival. Oh, yes. Yeah. Years now, yeah. So, yeah, your legacy is definitely there from that. Yeah, it is. Apparently, they've got a quite a, a little stand featuring me in their museum in Trossingham. <laughs> and also, I noticed in, in Jersey on the video, you, you're presented with a nice large plaque for your efforts for organizing. Have you still got that plaque uh, at home there? Yeah, I think it, it must be somewhere. But uh, going back to uh, working as a session man, you get lovely opportunities. I had a, I had a phone call say, there's a guy in, in Berlin who's doing a, a documentary film and uh, he's using guitar, harmonica and violin. So I got booked to do that. And I said, but it's not in Berlin. He's got a studio in Mallorca. So I thought, oh, that's a shame. Anyway, flew off to Mallorca. We worked in his studio. And, and there I met a guy called Richard Wright. And Richard is a wonderful guy. He plays guitar really well. <laughs> and he's on the top session then. And our association there led to him arranging this music for me. And we did a record. It was all chamber music. Beethoven, Stravinsky, Schubert. And this is a record called Pali Passu.
begun a nice association for him to take the trouble to arrange all that. So I did a lot of work for this guy. Uh, his name is Arpad Bondi. He made documentary films, but he was also a great musician and composer, and he composed all the music for his films. He used to send for me regularly to, on different projects. He was doing television shows. And I, I said to him uh, once, I think, all these harmonica players in Germany, and he paid for me to come from England. He said, no, you're the one I want, he said. Talking about that album a little bit more, so it's, it's a classical album, which is, uh, you've got the Schubert, Beethoven, Stravinsky, and Gordon Jacob on there. So yeah. it's a great, great, really high quality album as well some fantastic playing by all the musicians not only your own playing it is a great album you see there you go this is the girl on there who played viola she's a top session musician wonderful musician as you can hear on the record her viola playing is something else And, uh, well, a couple of the songs do the uh, the Cradle song, which is a beautiful one from Jacob. Oh, yeah. That was the one that was sort of out of context with the record. Mm. Everything else was done by by Richard Wright. He arranged it all. And then we added on this three to five pieces of Gordon Jacob. Yeah, talking through a few of your CDs. Did one earlier where I recorded music by James Moody. few Irish songs on there as well, aren't they? Well, James Moody was, he came into the harmonica scene as a BBC accompanist to Tommy Riley. When Tommy was working for the BBC, he got together with James, and James was like a resident and appearing on all sorts of programs, and he played a lot of ragtime music. He played everything. One I could talk for hours about James Moody, but he got together with Tommy and, and realised there was no repertoire for the harmonica. So he started writing for it, and he wrote some wonderful stuff, including the the, the amazing Toledo that is now. <laughs> it's like almost every harmonica player wants to play Toledo. Wonderful piece. When he died, I, I got to know him quite well. And when he died, he left all his unpublished compositions to me to do with what I wanted, you know. So I got them all. They were all written in pencil, you know, and not exactly too clear but I uh, I wrote them all out again by hand believe it or not I had been doing a bit of copying for the BBC uh, which made me a bit adept at copying music but then uh, I wrote them all out by hand and then I bought a computer and uh, <laughs> and got this uh, music system called uh, Sibelius which most people will know about did them all again on Sibelius and realized I got some nice, nicely presented uh, music copies. So I started selling them to the Harmonica Fraternity. Yeah, I've got some of those uh, James Reedy pieces I bought from you, so I've got some of those Irish... 
You also had John Brassington playing uh, one of your students, wasn't he? Who plays a duet yeah. on you, uh, oh, with you yeah. on that one. Johnny That's Brassington, yeah. He was, a, he was a good student. He was with me for years until he finally went to Australia. But he was a wonderful player. He was uh, really, really very good, as you can hear on the record, you know, a very competent player. thinking about students Julian Jackson he's a player a very nice jazz player I've got a lot of time for him I think he's a great guy Adam Glasser was with me for a time. Philip Shield, of course, you know, the phenomenon, Philip. <laughs> Incredible to, to get a guy like him to teach. He was with me from the age of 11. He plays anything. And now he's into jazz in a big way. He's got his own band now. Yeah, I saw Philip playing with his band uh, a year or two back, so I went to see him play in London, yeah. So you, you got involved, didn't you, in some of the music colleges here? You, you held the professorship of harmonica at Guildhall School of Music when, when you were helping Julian out there, didn't you? Yes. It all came about sort of by default. It wasn't that I approached the college and they employed me. I still worked from home. It was the fact that my pupils went on to attend music colleges and they had to find a teacher. And they said, well, there weren't any. So they said, well, you'll have to continue with your former teacher, which was me. And that's how I got on their books as a teacher. With Philip, uh, he went to the Royal College of Music in London. They had to do two instruments and he took saxophone and harmonica. Saxophone as a principal instrument. And as again... He wanted to continue with me as his teacher. They uh, said, okay, we'll, we'll appoint you as his teacher and you can become, in effect, a professor of harmonica, which I thought was rather nice. And I didn't have to do anything, you know, except just be told that that was it. And then the great thing was that they, they rang me after we'd been there a few weeks and they said, we realize that his principal instrument is not the saxophone, it's the harmonica. Yeah. So now you are an, uh, really a professor of harmonica and <laughs> welcome to the fraternity. And I put my fee up, which is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, but Philip uh, is phenomenal. Isn't so unusual? He won't mind me saying this. Unusual to teach because he he never asked a question. Can you imagine that? When you, if you're teaching somebody, you, they'll, they'll ask you about something. Never ask the question in all the years that I taught him. Obviously, worked for him. But he worked, yeah, because he, he did what he what I asked him to do, you know. We got really deep into music. So, yeah, some more CDs you've got out there. So it's one with Paul Lewis. I started working for Paul Lewis on television. He was inspired enough to go away and, and write a complete album for me, you know. And that's all on that uh, recording, which I'm very proud of. I think there's some nice stuff on there. 
that's called serenade and dance, and that's serenade and dance. Yeah. So again, composed for the harmonica, and you've got again got nice strings on there, so nice arrangements with strings. Yeah, we got we got harp, strings, piano. Yeah, that's it. So and like you say, there's a duet with a harp, which is really nice. Uh, T for three and. And then after that, in 2007, you released an album, more mainly a sort of jazz swing, called The Taste of Summer Wine. Ah, yes. That was with the musicians from the Summer Wine Band, led by uh, Pat Hallings, who was the lead violinist, and his son, the singer called Carl Hallings. He and I were talking one day, and I, I said, I want to make a record. Perhaps you could get involved in the string quartet. And he said, well, I, I want to do a recording with my son singing. And from that came this record. We, all we did was standards, old standards, you know, the good old stuff. Don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. I think the result was quite nice. And we got Ronnie Hazelhurst to write something for us. A Yorkshire Tale, which is lovely writing, beautiful writing. It's a medley of, of sort of English folk tunes, including the theme from Summer Wine. So this album, Taste of Summer Wine, it's playing. You wanted to play some some sort of swing jazz stuff, yeah. That's that's a, a genre you've been interested in for a long time. I love Not playing just, in that style. Yeah, I love that. It's got a bit of a feel, I think, for swing. You know, while I'm not I'm not a great improviser, I have a go. You know, but I can play in a swingy way. Yeah, I love that sort of music. So is it playing on this from rhythm music, or were you improvising on there too? No, it's all arranged. Yeah, wow. Every note is arranged. So did except, you sight read that when you recorded it? Yes. Yeah. That's all sight reading. All the jazz phrases, which I learned when I worked with Johnny Patrick, you see, he used to write everything out. And that's when I really learned about reading rhythm and uh, and getting the feel right, you know. And it, it was wonderful to have that experience. Uh, I wonder, do you have those arrangements still? Yeah, I think Pat Allen would have them. Because he, he ended up making it his project rather than mine. So I just became not the, the producer of the record, I became a player on the recording. Yes, yeah, great album. Yeah, some, some great stuff. And good to hear you playing that, John. And then you did a, another recording of Christmas songs with uh, Rob Janssen. Oh, my goodness, yeah. That's a long time ago. That was done for America. Snowflake Records, I think it was. 
And all this guy produced was, was Christmas albums featuring different combinations of instruments. Well, I'd done an earlier one for him with a, with a proper band, and then he got the idea of doing... Well, I, I, I offered it to him. I said, why don't you do one with harmonica band? Which we did, and I got Ivan Richards, who's another pupil of mine, a former champion, very fine player. Well, I got him, myself, and then we hadn't got a proper, decent sight-reading bass and chord player. So I got in touch with Robbie Anson, and we got him and uh, and his bass player to come across from Holland, and uh, that was the result. Yeah, that was a nice recording. And they're, they're part of Fatima Ghana now, is that right? Fatima Ghana, yeah. Yeah. Who I should add is I think one of the finest harmonica groups ever. They yeah. are terrific. Another thing, I think, is as a BBC thing, you took part in the John Barry concerts. That was at the Royal Albert Hall, and mm-hmm. uh, played all John Barry's compositions, film compositions, and I actually met him there, and I did the uh, Midnight Cowboy. That's nice, that, that's a nice thing to do. Yeah. Duke Spielman did, did the original on the film, The Amazing Toot. And uh, a recent concert you had last year was your 90th birthday party, Jim. So <laughs> congratulations on that. And oh, then you got a, you got a few uh, a few guests to come over and come with the people you'd mentioned there: Robbie Anson, Drew Adler, Philip Philip Well, Shield. the thing was, it was never meant to be a harmonica thing ever. I mean, I just happened to be talking to Drew Adler on the phone, and it was just mentioned that I was going to be 90 that year. He said, "Are you having a party?" I said, "Just a family thing." Or wasn't meant to be anything to do with harmonica, just friends and family. And before I knew it, he said, I'm coming over. And then he said, he announced, Rob Janssen's coming over as well. And I <laughs> I really couldn't refuse that. So they came, and it was Philip was there, and they did a little session, and that was good. And I played a couple of tunes, and that was it. So still playing well at uh, the Grand Old Age of 90. Yeah, and the Over the Rainbow. I made an arrangement of that, uh, featuring three tunes from the film. Quite pleased with that. So you played in quite a lot of ensemble groups in the 50s and, and you actually ran 
an ensemble group for several years where you you had quite an uh, the harmonica orchestra orchestra uh, yeah. come around and. I organized the Harmonica Orchestra of Great Britain. And at one time, we had as many as 20-odd players. Mainly my pupils got them together to keep the interest going, you know. Difficulty is getting bass players and chord players. The Hotter Trio were amazing. We're going back to the 50s now, and their bass player was just just mind blowing. Talking a bit now about your about your playing style, and obviously we've talked about you about your start reading. But one thing you always get, Jim, is fantastic tone. So let me talk about how you developed uh, your tone from that. Yeah, that was something I set out to do quite deliberately because everybody's got their own sound. Every harmonica player and all all the top pros, you can know it, you know immediately. You know that's so and so, so and so. As I was learning to play, I was doing hours and hours of practice, and I found some notes sounded beautiful. I usually played in the bathroom, by the way, <laughs> for the resonance. Yeah. And some notes are beautiful and some weren't. So I thought, well, I've got to develop an overall quality of sound. And that's what I worked on. You know, I, I did it by you know, thinking about the pressure, of the, the wind pressure and the, the embouchure. And gradually I began to develop this universal sound, if you like, as I played. So it was always the same. And I got rid of hand vibrato totally. And I was in for, for a while. I played with a, an intense throat vibrato, which was way back, which was quite a disgusting sound to me. You know, it was just too intense, too over the top. And it flattened the notes as I played. So I, I had to develop something that was partially that, partially the shape of my mouth. But I found that the softer I played, and the more relaxed I was, the better the sound. And I had to sort of forget about volume altogether and just play in a natural way, but very easily. I'll tell you what it's akin to, singing. If you sing, you sing in a way that, that you want to express emotion or whatever. And uh, I applied the same sort of attack on the reed as I would if I was singing. Over years, and literally years, I've developed this sound, which I know is quite distinctive, and I'm quite proud of it. Yeah, you talk about playing soft, but you do get also quite a big, loud sound out of it as well, don't you, is it? I suppose I do, yeah. But I, I suppose I'm thinking more of, pra as you practice, you know, not to, not to go over the top, to take it easy. You know, things develop, and it's hard to say exactly how you do it, but it's experimentation and becoming aware to be able to sort of stand outside yourself and listen to yourself. Because as you're playing, the sound you, that you hear is quite different to the sound you hear if you're listening to yourself from a distance. And so it, it just developed, and I'm, I'm very pleased with it, because there's too yeah. much hand vibrato and too much folk vibrato still goes on from, from amateur players. 
I'll give you an instance. I'm going to talk about somebody that I admired so much, that Franz Kmel from Austria. He's dead now. He's only a young guy, and he died. His technique, and I would advise you to look him up on, on YouTube. You won't believe what you hear. But going back to the sound, he, he, had a, he developed a technique as clean and as beautiful as you could imagine until he got onto his long note. And we had to play a long note he put too much vibrato on it. It didn't work. He did like the Mozart clarinet concerto. Technically, it's quite a challenging instrument, isn't it? Well, this legato playing... He's on that serenade and dance, Paul Lewis's uh, composition. This transition from a blow note to a draw note and making it sound as if it's one breath. There's a lot of work on that. And I learned a lot about playing in that way from Tommy Riley, who was a mm -hmm. great technician. This is one of the most difficult things to do. Talking about difficulties on the harmonica, the big stumbling block is the, the position of the note E. Having the C in hole four and then hole five and you know eight and nine and then again you got your B sharp on draw four and draw eight. I had to get over that. That gave me a hell of a lot of trouble when I was really practicing scales. And each time you came to this bridge passage over the note C, it presented its own little problem: how you approached it, how you left it. I developed a general rule. I had to think about this and work on it a lot because. Players always said to me, which C do I play? Which C do I play? Some place at a high C on the way up, low C on the way down. I didn't know that doesn't work. I found that playing in hole five all the time, with a few exceptions, of course, was the best way to go. Mm. So that the C, I always knew that the note in the same hole as C was going to rise like C to D. And the only thing on the harmonica, as you know, if, where the draw note is lower than the blow note, is in hole four, four and eight, which makes it a strange physical thing. Mm. Always through me. So I find now that the, the C in hole four is the, the least played note on my harmonica. You have to know where you are, and especially at that point. A question I ask each time, Jim, is if you had 10 minutes to practice, uh, what would you spend that 10 minutes doing? Or if you were advising someone else to practice for 10 minutes, what would you spend 10 minutes doing? I play scales, I play slowly, and I play arpeggios. I've written a couple of good exercise books which demonstrate a lot of things that I do. Yeah, I was going to mention those. So the, again, I've got those two books, and I use them certainly for quite a lot of time, and I do return to them periodically. So there are lots of great exercises around scales, and I think a little bit based on the Jerry Corker's famous book around patterns for jazz, isn't it? Yeah, this is a general, this is in book two. This yeah. is a general sort of standard idea of practice for, for jazz players, which means that whatever you do, you've got to do it in every key. And if you play an arpeggio, then play it again, in another key and then in another key and keep changing key. That's going up one scale, down another scale. But it yes. certainly helped me a lot to get away from, you know, just playing in C, which of course lots of chromatic players are guilty of doing. And you said when well, you started out, you know, that's something you did as well. So Absolutely. I mean, because I didn't know any difference. See, not knowing about music, not understanding quite what I, what I should have done, 
I feel that although I played by ear for five years and sort of learned a, a sort of basic technique, I wasted that time when I could have been studying music. So everything's been late for me, late, no, well, late developer. At least you didn't waste time playing computer games. Eh? <laughs> so uh, <laughs> if we can just move on to the last section now. This is where I talk uh, a little bit about equipment and, and things. So first of all, what harmonica? Almost exclusively played the Honer 270, 12-hole. Can't play the 16-hole. It doesn't stick with me. And then I got on to the Silver Concerto harmonica, which uh, Tommy Riley developed. I think it cost me about £170 to buy at that time. And now they're a thousand. And then I inherited latterly the Polystat, developed by George Polystat. Beautiful instrument, grossly over overpriced at five thousand pounds. And I never bought one, but I did inherit one from Bill Stewart, who in turn had he'd inherited one from somebody he repaired for. I often wonder about, about playing that much for chromatics, because in a way, chromatics aren't really supposed to last forever, are they? They're sort of reads where, uh, yeah, you can retune them, but it might be better that you replace them rather than spending so much. So did yeah. you find that very expensive harmonica, you know, did last and was superior for a long time? Well, it, it, it did last. It was quite good. But the best harmonica as regards lasting and keeping in tune, is the Seidel with stainless steel reeds. I've got one, it's the latest one I bought about three or four years ago. I've got it on the internet. It's never been tuned. It's absolutely in tune all the time. To Seidel, and it cost me 200 quid. It's really amazing. Yeah, no, the stainless steel reeds are interesting. That they were developed by uh, Doug Tate. He did the, the Renaissance, and he used stainless steel reeds. Seidel did make a, a version of the Renaissance, didn't they? That's it. And that's where the stainless steel came from, as far as I know. I may be wrong, but that's the impression. But that's I'll not get. the model Seidel you're talking about, because they were much more expensive, weren't they? Yeah. Oh, the Renaissance, I could never get to grips with. I hated that, to be honest. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I really hated that instrument. But this is good, really good. Do you uh, just play chromatics in the key of C? Yes, only C, yeah. I can't play a harmonica set in any other key. I know yeah. exactly what the sound is going to be where, by what position I'm in on the harmonica. Even a yeah. G harmonica, I can't play it. <laughs> I just go all over the place. This is why I, I, I'm so impressed with people like Brandon Power who develops instruments to, to play certain tunes. And the the, uh, the settings, the reeds are all in different distances. You know, he'll do a whole a whole tone or he'll develop something just for, just for one purpose. But how he can remember where to blow draws, God knows, so clever. Yeah, I've had, I've had Brendan on the podcast and I've talked to him about that. And, and what he does is he uses them, I think, as you say, for particular songs. So he, he knows what to do on that song with that harmonic, you know. So that's how he gets his head around it, which is uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, um, developing a technique, he develops a note formation. <laughs> and so obviously you're a chromatic player. Have you, do you play any diatonic? Have you ever played any diatonic harmonic? No, and I must admit... I would love to, and I've actually said that I'm going to play diatonic. I'm going to buy one and have a go. I thought to Ricky, who I've known forever, you know, he's a great guy. And uh, I said, I'm going to play one. He advised me what to buy, but I still haven't got around to it. I'll have to get one from the internet, you know. Love the diatonic. Talk a little bit about customization. So I know that you've used two customizers over the years, Bill Stewart and then Mark Potts. So is that something which, you know, you felt you needed to keep it in control? Oh, yeah. You know, I was 
been so lucky to have my own personal tuners, you know, Bill Stewart and then and then uh, Mark Potts. A wonderful luxury that was. Mm. Uh, so talking about the embouchure that you they use, what do you use? Tongue, yeah. tongue blocking? I prefer person. tongue blocking. I play to the right of my tongue. My tongue blocks a couple of holes. It's really difficult to play a reiterated note using that method. That's the only drawback. Well, I couldn't get a sound any other way. Yeah, so do you, are you exclusively tongue blocking or do you sometimes switch to puckering? No, very rare puckering. Very rare, only in extreme circumstances. So it's, uh, I'd say, 99% tongue blocking, 99.5%. The only note I don't use it is on hole one, of course, which what I use, my tongue is off the instrument. Uh, and as to amplification, what amplification do you like to use? I don't use any particular. I've never bought any amplification. I just use a microphone. All my work's done in studios, and I rely a lot on the sound engineer. And I guess this is this is why I, when I'm recording, I play in a relaxed manner. I'm quite at ease, you know, in a studio. It's where I belong. Just love it. Are you aware of what microphones were used in the studio when you were recording the chromatic? No, I've Sorry. never gone into that. I'm, no. I'm not a very technically minded person. Well, I mean, that's the beauty of a studio, isn't it? You've got all the sound guys sorting that out for you, so uh, that's, that's understandable, that's yeah. But when you're playing live, as you say, you're playing into a stand-up microphone, usually into the PA. So you would stand off the microphone, would you, rather than holding it? I don't like holding the microphone, no. I stand away from it, sort of both hands are controlling the instrument. Yeah, I mean, so obviously then you can add more maybe effects and a bit of space between you and the microphone. But someone like Toots Thielmans, of course, he did hold the microphone. So yes, it has a good sound, isn't it? And so, so does Philip, you know, Philip Asheel. He yeah. holds the microphone. I can't do that. It's like Not, to be a more relaxed and free, you know. I think that's yeah. a hindrance. And microphone-wise, when you're playing live, is it just a, what, an SM58 or anything particular? You see, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I really don't. I, I just hope that I'm going to be given a decent amplification system. Yeah, you just get up and play what's in front of you, which, yeah. is, which is great, yeah. So I assume then you haven't used any effects pedals then. Again, whatever's there, you'll use like You're not adding reverb or anything like that? No, no, nothing like that. Yeah, oh, brilliant, yeah. A pure sound, and then a beautiful sound you make with that as well. So, um, Well, thank you. <laughs> and talking about chromatic harmonica now, you know, we talked about, obviously, in the 50s and before, you know, the golden age of chromatic, all the fantastic plays, Larry Adler, Tommy Riley, all these great plays which inspired you and, and you went on. Chromatic was in a great shape there. So what do you think about the shape of the chromatic harmonica now and maybe some of the players around today that you like? Well, one of my favorite players and I don't know what instrument he plays, is Antonio Serrano. He plays the Honda 270, by the way. There you go. Yeah. That's it. That's my favorite instrument. And in the old days, they used to make lovely instruments. Beautiful. I cringe when I think of how many I used to throw away because I had nobody to, to tune them up and, and I just wore them out. But they were beautiful instruments. And then the, the long slot came. That was just a longer reed, which worked beautifully. But now the 270, with its wooden body, you had to make the sound. 
and you could manipulate the sound and control it. And this is how I developed the tone, by using that instrument. Some harmonicas, it's sort of built in, and you can't do much with it. I mean, and as to the, the future, the, you know, the, the playing of chromatic harmonica, obviously the diatonic harmonica is probably much more popular than the chromatic now. And Oh, know, yeah. And, yeah. I mean, why, why do you think that is? Can, what can you do to you know, make sure the chromatic harmonica still is, is out there being played? Well, very simply, it's a very difficult instrument, the chromatic harmonica. I mean, really difficult to play properly. And I admire anybody that really gets down to it and, and masters the instrument. I think it's been developed as much as it can be uh, with the layout and everything. Even though we get our two Cs together, there's no avoiding that. I just like the soft, mature sound of the wooden lock on a harmonica, which the 270 has. I think it's made of pear wood. But when you hear people like Serrano that I've just uh, mentioned, you see, he can get this wonderful, sensitive sound, which breaks me up, you know. I've got some of his records, and I just melt when I listen to him. I think he's a man right now for uh, for sensitivity and, uh, and everything else. There are excellent players in, in the Far East, I know about that. And I love their enthusiasm in Japan and China and Taiwan and Malaya. Uh, the most enthusiastic players, and they are achieving terrific stuff, you know. But they tend to get very technical, I find. And I like That's to look at the slow, melodic yeah. stuff, sensitive playing. And I think to hear somebody play slowly is more indicative of their musicianship than uh, somebody rattling off notes at a terrific rate, you know, which is just technique. Oh, it's lovely. I mean, looking back now, it's shaped my life totally. As I said at the beginning, it's everything I do, I can relate back. So, yeah, a great a long career, Jim. Congratulations on all you've achieved and the amazing things and the legacy, as I say, of Trossingham still going on. So thanks very much for speaking to me today. That's an absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. That's episode 26. Thanks so much for listening again. If anybody wants to get hold of Jim's music, then email me at happyhourharmonicapodcast at gmail.com and I'll be able to put you in touch with the family to sort that out. Got to say a massive thank you to Roger Trowbridge. He's helped me put together so much of the material for this episode. Been a massive help. He runs an archivist website all about harmonica through the years. Some tremendous stuff over there, especially around the golden age of the harmonica, which we talked about during this interview. So Roger's archivist website is linked off the front page of the podcast. Also, a big thank you to Ricky Cool who helped me set up the interview. Got out all the range. So thanks, guys. Couldn't have done it without you. Reminder again to my sponsor, the Lone Wolf Blues Company, making great effects pedals and amps for harmonica. Check out the website, some great stuff to enhance the sound. Please remember to subscribe again to the podcast. I look forward to um, seeing you next time. Finally, Jim's going to play us out with Caprice. This is the test piece that we talked about earlier in the interview for the World Harmonica Championship in 1987. So a real challenging piece. So, Jim, over to you. (laughs) 